You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefe, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. For the past few weeks, we've looked extensively into the French and Dutch pirates active in the West Indies during the last years of the Buccaneer era. Jan Willems, Nicholas von Horn, Mikhail Andrézun, and Hugh Lavu, Michel de Gramont, and Lorho de Graaf. We covered more than 20 years of history in that time, from about... 1680 to 1700. We talked about the end of the Franco-Dutch War, the War of the Reunions, and even the Nine Years' War. Now, though, we need to go back to the beginning of that story. We need to rewind the clock back from the dawn of the 18th century to about the end of the Franco-Dutch War. If you're new to the show and not caught up, I suggest you go back and listen to some of those older episodes. They're very good. Still, though, as a bit of a refresher, I'd like to talk briefly about the English pirates and privateers active in the world during that time, and the English policies toward them, as well as the world events that shaped them, mostly from an English perspective. I'll do my best to avoid my habit of giving context all the way back to the fall of Rome, but I will say this. England and the Dutch Republic had a very on-again, off-again sort of relationship. They were old allies back to the founding of the Dutch Republic, but by about the mid-17th century, they had become bitter rivals. They were fighting over trade and colonial possessions. They fought two wars, the First and Second Anglo-Dutch Wars. Then, in the interest of containing French expansion under Louis XIV, England joined the Triple Alliance, that is, England, Sweden, and the Netherlands. Those three countries allied to reinforce Spain against France. However, King Charles II of England really liked Louis XIV, and he didn't think much of either Spain or the Netherlands. So a mere two years after joining the Triple Alliance, he switched sides and allied with King Louis. The war that followed goes by a number of different names, and we've used all of them on that show. And actually, that war encompassed several different conflicts. To the north, in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Brandenburg, they were fighting a war called the Scanian War amongst themselves. 
From the English point of view, it's called the Third Anglo-Dutch War. That saw England and France allied against the Netherlands, Spain, and the Holy Roman Empire. That war lasted for two years, and it broke down largely like this. France fought a land war against the Dutch on their border, while England fought a naval war in the North Sea and in the East Indies and in the West Indies. In the prosecution of this naval war, they pressed thousands of young men into naval service and employed thousands more as privateers. However, Parliament didn't much care for that war. It was costly, and it was unnecessary, and really it benefited England very little. Really all it did was serve to aid Louis XIV in his wars. Now, Parliament didn't share Charles II's love for all things French, and pressed the king once again to switch sides. So England allied with Spain and the Netherlands for the remainder of what is called the Franco-Dutch War. When that war ended, all of those thousands of young sailors who'd been pressed into naval duty were released from service, and all of the privateers saw their commissions dry up. England quit handing them out. That left thousands of Englishmen in the West Indies without work. Many of them turned to smuggling. Some of them even tried to attempt legitimate trade, but most of them turned to logwood cutting. They poached logwood from the Spanish main. That was a profitable enterprise, but it was hard work, and it was dangerous work, and still not nearly as profitable as buccaneering. So they began to leave the logwood camps and turn to roving. It began slowly at first, but it picked up speed. Now this was outright piracy. These were one-time privateers that turned to roving without commissions. And that's where we catch up with the Pirates of the Pacific Adventure. That's John Coxon, Richard Sawkins, and Bartholomew Sharp when they crossed the Isthmus at Darien to raid Panama and then the Pacific coast of South America. If you haven't listened to those episodes, go back and do so. On that Pacific adventure, though, we met John Cook and Edward Davis, and then three men that chronicled that voyage, William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, and Basil Ringrose. This was a very well-documented voyage, an unusually well-documented voyage, even a suspiciously well-documented voyage. William Dampier was a naturalist, and he wrote extensively on the flora and fauna found in modern-day Panama and into South America. He was also a pioneer in documenting currents and wind patterns in the region. This sort of information would prove useful should, say, any British colonists ever set sail for the region. Now, Lionel Wafer was also educated, and he was injured on the voyage and forced to stay behind with the Kuna, an Amerindian tribe that populated the Darien region of Panama. He wrote exhaustively of the Kuna, of their customs and traditions and their social structure, and he published his work in 1695. That's just the sort of information that would be invaluable if, for example, hypothetically speaking, the Company of Scotland attempted to establish a colony there in 1698 at New Edinburgh, which would fail miserably and lead to the kingdoms of England and Scotland officially uniting into one single united kingdom. You know, on the off chance that might happen. But that information, those writings of both Dampier and Wafer were 
tough to come by, by any legal means in England. However, should some unscrupulous pirate just happen upon that information while raiding a Spanish ship or a Spanish colony, well, that sort of service would outweigh any crimes he may have committed. You see, England and Spain were at peace in 1680. They were even recent allies in that Franco-Dutch war. So England was unable to move openly against Spain without risking warfare, and they didn't want a war, but they did want some of that valuable real estate on the western coast of South America. They'd been interested in it ever since Francis Drake and the Golden Hind. While they were still at war with Spain during the Third Anglo-Dutch War for the first two years of it, they actually sent royal naval squadrons to scout out the region, but now they couldn't, not officially. However, they did have all of these out-of-work privateers just hanging around there in the West Indies. Perhaps if the Lords of Trade or maybe a colonial governor secretly funded an expedition and sent along a few educated men to document the voyage, those pirates could do what the Royal Navy could not. Now, I've gone into a fair amount of detail in those older episodes, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that the Pacific Adventure, from its inception, was aided, funded, and even planned at the highest levels of the English government, from King Charles and James, the Duke of York, all the way down to the lowest colonial governors in the New World. Now that's a conspiracy theory. It involves a conspiracy to commit illegal acts of war that insulated the Kingdom of England from any responsibility. However, it's not a theory without precedent. This is irregular warfare, and this sort of warfare is ancient, and still, even today, commonplace. For example, during the Cold War, the U.S. fought two very hot wars with China in Korea and Vietnam, but neither of those were officially wars against China. When, in 2014, Russia decided to annex Crimea, it was Russian troops that did so, but they claimed that those troops were merely Ukrainian freedom fighters or Russian soldiers on vacation. And the U.S. does the same sort of thing all over the world, in Syria and Iran and Libya and Egypt. But we're not at war with any of those countries. Much like those pirates in the Southern Ocean, those were all unofficial actors. They weren't sanctioned by a government, not officially, but that doesn't mean that they weren't sent there by the government. Eventually, though, the Pacific Adventure broke apart. William Dampier and Lionel Wafer, along with John Cook and his first mate, Edward Davis, well, they left the expedition. They returned to the North Sea, what we call the Caribbean, and eventually disbanded altogether. In 1682, Lionel Wafer briefly returned to England, and then sailed back to the North American colonies. William Dampier went directly to the colony at Virginia, rather than back to his wife in England. John Cook and Edward Davis, well, they went to ground. Perhaps they returned to the logwood camps in the Bay of Campeche, or maybe the Mosquito Coast, or even possibly they just settled down in Port Royal for a while. You see, it was a bad time to be a privateer, especially an English privateer, in the West Indies. After the Pacific Adventure, Spain was furious. It was a good time for men of that profession to 
avoid notice. However, they wouldn't stay quiet for long. This is episode 61, More Willful and Less Under Command. In that hypothetical English plan to scout out the Pacific for possible weak points or promising locations for colonies, there is one argument that stands above all of the others. This is the work of Basil Ringrose. His account, entitled The Dangerous Voyage and Bold Assaults of Captain Bartholomew Sharp, is the most detailed account of that voyage out there. Not only in terms of the day-to-day affairs of the pirates, but he also precisely mapped their voyage. He drew maps, he recorded coordinates, and he listed landmarks. It's clear that he intended that work to serve as a guide for anyone that might follow after him. That work was so extensive that even beyond the publication of his own book, it's been collected into a modern compendium called A Buccaneer's Atlas, and it's filled with surprisingly accurate and detailed maps. Now, any work like this, be it topographical or historical or scientific, well, it needs other similar works against which to compare and cross-examine it, and Bartholomew Sharp would have luck there. Shortly after Dampier and his party left the voyage, in April of 1681, the Spanish merchantman Rosario, quote, encountered the ship La Trinidad, took her for a Spaniard, but found her to be a pirate. In the first three shots, the pirates killed the captain, Juan Lopez of the Rosario, boarded her, took the wine, silver, and everything of value, and put the Spaniards to torture to discover if there were any more silver. Then they turned the vessel adrift, with sails cut, and taking five or six of the crew, dependent among them, sailed for the island of La Plata, refreshed there for three days, killed one of the Spaniards, and flogged another. La Trinidad was the flagship of Bartholomew Sharp. Now, the wine they found on the Rosario was certainly of value, especially at sea, and silver was obviously always a good find but they would have taken any cargo on La Rosario that was worth carrying. However, the most valuable items they found on the ship were maps, even if they didn't know how valuable they were yet. The ship had a collection of good Spanish maps of the region, though. Bartholomew Sharp took charge of these. He secured them, he studied them, and then he gave them to Basil Ringrose, who compared them to his own work. The Trinidad sailed south, raided a few more ships and settlements, and in November of 1681, they rounded Cape Horn and returned to the West Indies. Now, first they sailed for Barbados. There, quote, Neither dared we be so bold as to put in there at Barbados, for hearing of a frigate lying there we feared, lest the said frigate should seize us for privateers, and for having acted in all our voyage without commission. Thus we stood away thence for the island of Antigua. End quote. They passed right on by St. Lucia and Martinique and Guadeloupe. Of Antigua, Sharp writes, quote, The gentry of the place and common people were very willing and desirous to receive us, but the governor flatly denied us entry, at which all the gentry were very much grieved. End quote. Now he probably wasn't lying about that, probably not boasting. Pirates were, even if they were distasteful to deal with, always exactly the sort of people that the gentry were happy to receive in port. 
For example, a few weeks later, it would be noted that the pirates possessed, quote, several thousands of pounds and several portmanteaux of jewels and gold and silver, coined and uncoined, end quote. That's the sort of visitors that anyone would be happy to see arrive on their shores, no matter where it happened to be. Remember when Jan Willems sailed on Boston and the people there just ignored the royal decree and invited the pirates to come in and spend all of their money? Well, the people of the Caribbean Islands, as Sharp calls them, would have been equally thrilled to see the pirates show up. But there, after receiving such a cold welcome, the crew of the Trinidad decided to disband. Sharp left the ship in the possession of the crew, who would pirate around for a while before being picked up by Jamaican authorities and tried for piracy. Only one man was executed, but it was actually Henry Morgan who oversaw that trial. The rest of the crew, though, decided to return to England. At St. Thomas, Sharp and ten others booked passage on Captain Charles Howard's ship, White Fox. Basil Ringrose and thirteen others, the rest of the crew returning to England, took passage on Captain Robert Portine's ship, the Lisbon Merchant. They arrived in Plymouth on 25 March 1682. Only about two weeks after arriving in England, Bartholomew Sharp and most of the rest of the crew would be arrested. He was arrested on the insistence of the Spanish ambassador. He faced the Admiralty Court on 10 June 1682. Now, the case would eventually be thrown out due to a lack of material evidence. However, Sharp also turned over the copies of the maps taken from La Rosario. The court recognized the value of those maps and Captain Sharp's value as an experienced naval commander. He would actually be granted a Royal Naval Commission, and eventually he would return to the West Indies, but before long he would be privateering again. Now, the rest of Bartholomew Sharp's life is blurry. There are rumors that he actually sailed alongside Lord Hau de Graaf and Michel de Gramont. They say that he may have attacked Campeche in 1685, as well as to even have returned to the Pacific at one point, but no real evidence exists of either. In 1688, he was reported to be the commander of Anguilla, but in exactly what capacity he was commander remains unclear. Now, he probably fought in the Nine Years' War, and by 1699, he was recorded to be in a Danish prison on St. Thomas. There, he would actually die on the 29th of October, 1702. However, it was his escapades in the Pacific adventure that captured the English mind. His trial before the Admiralty Court was widely reported all across England and in the colonies. Many people took an interest, not so much in Bartholomew Sharp himself, but in everything that he saw there in the Southern Ocean. Now, they didn't have the sort of wide public fascination that we would see with Henry Morgan or the sort that we'll see later with Blackbeard and his fellows, but there was an interest. It seems to have been, though, mostly a political interest, or a commercial and scientific interest. The Southern Ocean was, in England, seen as a, a little-known region with ample opportunity for exploitation. If there was a concerted effort to take over or inherit 
the Spanish Empire there in England, well, Cuba or Mexico were bad entry points, but the Pacific Coast was a fantastic entry point. So a number of industrious English captains began to prepare voyages around Cape Horn. They were all allegedly to trade with the Spanish settlements there on the Pacific coast. Most notably were Captain John Eaton of the Nicholas and Captain Charles Swan of the Signet. Any sailors that had knowledge of the Pacific were approached by these two captains. They were encouraged to join up, hopefully to help navigate the expeditions. Now, anybody who did probably signed up. It was a profitable voyage, but many other intrepid sailors with a mind for adventure joined their crews as well. Now, Charles Swan actually met Basil Ringrose. He picked his brain about the first Pacific adventure. Charles Swan was a man with more than a little pull in London, at least in the less savory sort of circles. He was a long-time buccaneer and privateer. He'd actually accompanied Henry Morgan across the Isthmus back in 1671, when they first sacked Panama, and then Swan led more than a few missions of his own. But it appears that by 1683, he had transitioned into legitimate trade, at least on paper, legitimate trade. But he convinced Ringrose to invest in the voyage and to join up as a sort of guide. He prepared his 16-gun ship Signet. He stocked the ship with provisions and bought 5,000 pounds sterling worth of goods to trade. It took him several months, but by October 1st he was ready to sail. However, those months cost him. He was beaten to sea by Captain John Eaton, and Eaton would cause him trouble. John Eaton was also reportedly going to South America for the purposes of trade. However, as soon as his ship, the Nicholas, arrived off the coast of Portuguese Brazil, he began raiding and capturing ships. All of the ships he took, he sank, and then he began to raid settlements, even down to the lowliest fishing villages. If the locals there didn't accede to his wishes, he would see all the locals killed, and then he would see the town burned. Even when they did do as he wished, Captain Eaton was likely as not to let his men run rampant in the town. They robbed, they raped and burned and murdered their way down the coast of Brazil. This was causing real problems for Captain Swan. He arrived virtually on the heels of Captain Eaton, sometimes only a week or so behind him. And when he did arrive in these small towns and fishing villages, hoping to trade, well, they were sometimes still burying their dead and cleaning up the rubble from the last time an English trader had visited their shores. They weren't exactly friendly to the crew of the Signet, even though they were there to trade. More often than not, they were fired upon or chased off, and even when they weren't, they were openly insulted and refused entry. Now that means that the Signet wasn't earning any money, but also that Swan wasn't able to trade for water or foodstuffs. The men were forced to hunt and fish and collect water from creeks and rivers. The men were getting a bit agitated, mostly because they weren't earning anything for themselves. So finally, Swan quit even trying to enter those towns. He sailed a little bit further out to sea to catch the winds that would carry him south. 
he arrived at the mouth of the Straits of Magellan in just a few weeks' time. But when he got there, he found another English ship. It was the Nicholas of Captain Eaton, now the frigid and stormy and empty waters around Cape Horn and the Straits of Magellan are not exactly the place to make enemies, especially not with a crew of pirates who are well-versed in the art of killing. However, Captain Swan was upset with Captain Eaton, understandably. Eaton had made his job much harder than it needed to be. Still, he hailed the Nicholas and lay at anchor so the two ships could meet and talk. The crew of the Signet fraternized with the crew of the Nicholas. They shared wine and meat, and the Nicholas had plenty to share. They'd taken virtually everything that the Brazilians had. The crew of the Signet watched as the crew of the Nicholas gambled with silver and gold recklessly. They had enough to afford to lose. The Signet listened to the tales of the Nicholas visiting those villages and the adventures they had with the Brazilian women. To the crew of the Signet, this sort of life looked way better than their own daily routines of hard work and light rations and no money and no women. They entreated their captain, Captain Swan, to join up with Eaton. They wanted to join with the Nicholas. They begged him to go raiding with the pirates. Now Swan refused, but he said that nine of his crew abandoned ship and joined up with Eaton. Quote, after they saw they could not prevail with me to play the rogue, end quote. The two ships did agree to sail together, however. Petty things like murder and rape and robbery wouldn't keep countrymen from working together when they had this honestly really dangerous bit of sailing ahead of them. Neither of them knew their way through the straits, but Basil Ringrose had traveled around Cape Horn before, and he knew how to do so. They chose to follow his lead. Now, they were set upon by a storm during the crossing and separated, at least that's what Captain Swan said happened. Now, the Cape was dangerous, and it was often beset by storms, and they did separate, but Captain Swan would warn Spanish officers a little bit later on that there was another English ship out there, a pirate. He warned them and told them to be wary. So it seems like he knew that Captain Eaton was out there, still sailing. I think it's possible, not necessarily likely, but possible that they just parted ways after rounding the Cape, at least amicably, if not friendly. Now, Charles Swan and the Signet would do some trading in Spanish ports. The locals were surprised to meet an English merchant, but not unhappy to trade. You see, the English were able to undercut the costs that the Spanish monopoly had on goods. Signet was welcomed in those Spanish ports. They were fed and finally, blessedly, able to earn a living. On the other hand, John Eaton and the Nicholas were having poorer luck. Due to Captain Swan's warnings, Eaton found himself not at all welcome in any of those Spanish ports. He was fired upon, he was chased out of town, and he was hunted. He always managed to escape, sometimes by the skin of his teeth, but he kept sailing. The fortune of the two captains had switched. But then, on 19 March 1684, 
a large, heavily armed ship appeared on the horizon, threatening to chase down John Eaton and the Nicholas. To put all of this in the context of the story we've been discussing for the past several weeks, right at this moment, several hundred leagues to the north, Captains Lorho de Graff and Jan Willems and Mikhail Andrezun had just completed their attack on Cartagena. The War of the Reunions had just wrapped up. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. The Nicholas and the Signet, though, weren't the only ships that were interested in the Pacific. They weren't even the only pirates interested in the Pacific. Back in the West Indies, Captain John Cook was making his own preparations to sail. He captured two French merchantmen carrying wine off the coast of Saint-Dominique. He put one of them under the command of his quartermaster, Edward Davis, and took command of the second larger ship himself. If you think way back, back to when our story parted ways with William Dampier and Lionel Wafer and John Cook and Edward Davis, the English had just been betrayed by a French captain named Tristian. They were sailing companions, and all of them were brethren of the coast, when Captain Tristian arrested the English that were sailing on his ship. Now, legally speaking, he was well within his rights to do so, Tristian had a commission from the king of France. He was licensed to sail against the Spanish. The English had no commission. They were just pirates. So Tristian arrested Dampier and Cook and Wafer and Davis and nearly three dozen more men. 
Now most of them he left marooned on Ila Avace, intending to come back and collect them later. Dampier was among those. But John Cook and Edward Davis and the other officers he carried on to Tortuga. Now, when Tristian went ashore in the night, the English pirates broke free from their restraints and overwhelmed their French captors. They took command of Tristian's ship and sailed her back to Ila Avace to rescue Dampier and the others. And then he sailed off. Well, Captain Cook gave that ship to Dampier and Wafer and a few other Englishmen from the Pacific Adventure that chose to leave the West Indies. Now, he took command of a small sloop, but when he wound up capturing those two French merchantmen carrying wine, he was still a bit put out by that French betrayal. So he took command of that larger ship carrying 14 guns and named her Revenge. Now, those two ships sailed north from San Dominique, past Tortuga, and past New Providence Island. They sailed on by San Augustine and the swamps of Carolina toward the English colony at Virginia. Now, in 1683, Virginia was the largest and richest English colony in the New World. It surpassed Jamaica and even the New England colonies like New York and Massachusetts Bay, However, it was hardly what you'd call cosmopolitan. They were only a few years removed from Bacon's Rebellion. Really, most of the people in Virginia were still essentially frontiersmen and tobacco farmers. In A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, Diana and Michael Preston write of Virginia, quote, The colony had been founded as a profit-making enterprise, but at first this seemed a pipe dream. The settlers' hopes of finding gold were soon disappointed. Attempts to grow exportable crops such as pineapples and olives failed. However, tobacco saved the struggling colony and turned the pipe dream into a pipe-smoking reality. End quote. That's just one of those lines that I wanted to share and that I'm a little bit furious they come up with and I can't take credit for. But John Cook and Edward Davis sailed for Virginia for two reasons. First, Port Royal, really any of the English colonies in the West Indies, were unlikely to buy pirated goods. However, Virginia was a colony that was thirsty for trade goods and also less likely to ask too many questions. Second, though, and perhaps more importantly, there were at least 20 good seasoned pirates that they wanted to recruit. William Dampier, among the others, had retired to Virginia in 1682. Now, he'd spent 13 months there, essentially idle. It was a good place to relax after an adventure like he'd had in the Pacific, a, a particularly good place for Englishmen that had a little coin but not a lot of coin. It was the sort of place where they could find a modicum of civilization more than in Port Royal, but it was cheaper than living back in England. It was the perfect sort of place for men that had a little money but no source of income. It was a good place to stretch their dollars in relative luxury. Now, Dampier tells us almost nothing of his time in Virginia. All he writes is, quote, That country is so well known to our nation that I shall say nothing of it, nor shall I detain the reader with the story of my own affairs and the trouble that befell me during the thirteen months of my stay there. End quote. 
I would, in fact, very much like to hear what troubled him there. One is forced to wonder why he didn't choose to go and visit his wife back in England. In other works, he would give a little more detail, though. He was staying with a gentlewoman, and actually he might have been ill. He did discover, while he was there in Virginia, a strange string-like growth coming out of his leg. Now, the woman he was staying with thought it might be an exposed nerve, but Dampier correctly identified it as a guinea worm. He spent several weeks spooling the worm around a stick and slowly pulling it out of his leg. Finally, though, he employed the services of a local slave doctor. He sprinkled ground tobacco leaves around the exposed guinea worm and then wrapped the leg up. His leg eventually was fully cured. The Prestons actually point out that this treatment was of particular interest to the Royal Society in London many years later. But it was there in Virginia that Cook and Davis found him and told him of their intended voyage. Their plan was to return to the Pacific to raid the coast of Peru and the rich silver ships that sailed there. They hoped that Dampier and Wafer and all of the other companions from the Pacific Adventure would agree to sail with them. Now, these were all pirates that had been to the Pacific before. They had all sailed under John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp, and they had followed Cook when he chose to leave Bartholomew Sharp behind and return to the West Indies. They were all old friends. They were compatriots, and all of them knew the Pacific. Imagine, well, I imagine John Cook and Edward Davis as a sort of 17th century blues brothers, you know. We're putting the band back together. Forget it. No way. We're on a mission from God. It's imperative, though, to Cook and Davis that Dampier and Wafer and all the rest agree to join up. However, after their 13 months of just lazing around in Virginia, most of them were getting a little light on money, so everyone did agree to join. Now, Davis found a buyer for their smaller vessel, as well as someone to buy all the wine they were hauling. Both Ships and wine were the sort of commodity that would sell quickly, especially there in Virginia, and especially at the price that Davis was asking, no one was going to ask too many questions. It might seem a bit surprising that they sold off all the wine. After all, they were pirates. You'd think that they'd be likely to hold on to some of it for personal use. However, Dampier does tell us, quote, Having furnished ourselves with necessary materials and agreed upon some particular rules, especially of temperance and sobriety, by reason of the length of our intended voyage, we all went on board our ship. End quote. Temperance and sobriety might seem like strange articles to add to a pirate code, but it's hardly unusual, especially for these long voyages. Most pirate codes actually had articles restricting drinking and gambling. That's in opposition to uh, the popular image of pirates, but see, pirates could drink and gamble as much as they could afford to when they were ashore, but at sea they had a job to do. 
it wouldn't do for them to lose a prize or, even worse, be captured by the Spanish because the crew was too drunk to fight or to sail. Gambling, on the other hand, could lead to fighting and killing one another. The crew of the Revenge was to be sober, at least for now. Now, we do know a bit more about this crew than most of the other crews we've talked about, thanks to William Dampier's records. When they voted on their pirate code, it looked something like this. John Cook was voted as captain. Now, we only know a little bit about John Cook. According to Dampier, he was a Creole. we would say a Creole. Creole was a French term used to distinguish those born in the colonies from those born back in Europe. It rose to prominence in the Louisiana colony, but here Dampier uses it years before the Louisiana colony was even founded. John Cook's parents were English, but he was born on St. Kitts. He was a native of the West Indies. He sailed from a young age and probably served on board a number of brethren ships, but he eventually rose to the rank of quartermaster under Jan Willems during the Third Anglo-Dutch War. Edward Davis was voted in as quartermaster of the Revenge. Now, Davis was an Englishman. He was a native of Plymouth. It's also very likely, being from Plymouth, that he sailed from a very young age. We don't know exactly when he came to the West Indies, but it was probably during that same war when he would have met Captain Cook. It's worth mentioning here, once again, just what an important position a quartermaster was on board a pirate ship. In the Navy, the English Royal Navy, a quartermaster was a petty officer. They served as a helmsman and oversaw supply and provisions. He was responsible for seeing to orderly and regimented conduct in the crew's quarters, the quartermaster, and he also served as a sort of intermediary between the crew and the officers. On board a royal English vessel, there was to be little intermingling between the two classes of sailors. But on a pirate ship, every man had a vote and every man received a fair share so the crew's representative had a lot more power. He actually had a veto power over the captain. If the captain were to order an action too dangerous for the crew or that the crew just didn't approve of, they could take a vote and the quartermaster could veto it. The quartermaster led the crew whenever they boarded another vessel, and really in a lot of ways he ran the day-to-day operations of a ship. In virtually every way, the quartermaster was equal to the captain, even oftentimes getting the same share. Now, the captain only had absolute authority in battle, and even there, after the battle was done, the quartermaster had the power to call the captain to account for orders given during the battle. You know, during a battle, you can't have two men arguing over the best course of action. You don't have time for that sort of thing. However, if the captain makes a terrible mistake and a lot of men needlessly lost their lives, the quartermaster had the ability to remove him from power, even see him punished. Sometimes quartermasters would abuse that power to see themselves raised to the rank of captain. It was really quartermaster was a position that could challenge the power of the captain in a lot of ways. 
That usually only happened, though, if the captain was at odds with the crew. On board the Revenge, though, Cook and Davis were friends, and the crew was happy for the most part. So, instead of being a rival to the captain, Davis was more of a first mate. And then there was the pilot, Mr. Ambrose Crowley. Now, Crowley would go on to publish his own account of this voyage. He claimed to have a Master of Arts from Cambridge University. That's quite a bold claim. Much like Dampier and Wafer, though, he would eloquently paint himself as a gentleman and a scholar among a crew filled with rapscallions. There might be an element of truth to that, but they all three managed to overlook their own rapscallion behavior. And then there was the surgeon, a man named Mr. Hill. Now, both Dampier and Wafer had served as surgeons on board ships before, so that's at least three men able to do surgical duties who were all at least moderately well-educated. In fact, to, to hear Dampier tell it, the crew was filled to the brim with just stand-up guys. There was a man named Mr. Benjamin Barker that was, quote, a very diligent and observing person and, likewise, very sober and credible, end quote. Dampier's book is just filled with this sort of language. If you read A New Voyage Round the World and don't compare it to any other sources, which there weren't any others when he published it, you might believe that the crew of the Revenge is filled with gentlemen forced to this life of buccaneering. And there does seem to be, once again, a suspicious number of educated men on board, men that would relate their findings to the people back in London. Remember, England wasn't granting commissions. These men were pirates. Full stop, there was no question of it. However, Dampier and Wafer and Crowley would be called in to discuss their findings by the Royal Society of London. That's the same Royal Society that boasted members like Isaac Newton and Edward Halley. If Ambrose Crowley did have a Master of Arts from Cambridge University, there's a very good chance he actually met Isaac Newton and Edmund Halley. And Dampier, William Dampier, would be invited to address the Royal Society's fellows twice. They even published his findings. Edmund Halley was there on both occasions, and Isaac Newton probably on at least one. In fact, Edmund Halley, the he was the scientist after which Halley's Comet is named, he would publish a map of wind currents and tides all around the world. However, Dampier published his own map, and both Isaac Newton and Halley recognized Dampier's map as superior. Those two scientists, two of the most important English scientists ever to live, would actually use Dampier's findings in their own impressive work on rain and wind and tides and currents. That's the sort of sailor that was on board the Revenge when she set sail across the Atlantic. Now, the ship sailed east, towards Africa. They would have preferred to sail directly south, but considering the winds, that was impossible. They had to allow the trade winds to carry them east-southeast to Africa, and then back west-southwest to Brazil. Their first stop was at the Cape Verde Islands. Now, they had a bit of trouble with the Portuguese inhabitants there. 
Dampier writes, quote, The inhabitants would not suffer our men to land, for about a week before our arrival there came an English ship, the men of which came ashore pretending friendship and seized on the governor with some others and, carrying them aboard, made them send ashore for cattle to ransom their liberties. And yet, after this set sail and carried them away, and they had not heard of them since. The Englishman that did this, as I was afterwards informed, was one Captain Bond of Bristol. Whether he brought back these men again, I know not. End quote. This may or may not actually be true. See, Dampier mentions that other English pirate to justify the hostility that they faced there in the Cape Verdes, but then he goes on to discuss flamingos. He discusses their strange coloring and mating habits and migratory patterns, and then he discusses ambergris at some length, its viscosity and its color and where it is to be found, and he just goes on and on like this. What he fails to mention while he's discussing flamingos and whale vomit is the Dutch ship that he and his crewmates stole off the coast of Africa. In the introduction to A New Voyage Round the World, Sir Albert Gray writes, quote, The buccaneers boarded and took a fine Danish vessel, the Bachelor's Delight, 36 guns, to which Cook transferred his crew. It was an act of piracy so flagrant, committed against a friendly nation, without such shadow of excuse as was deemed to justify harms to Spain, that Dampier is evidently ashamed to mention it. End quote. They captured that Dutch ship of 36 guns and transferred all of their own guns to her. According to Crowley, they also loaded her up with, quote, good brandy, water, provisions, and other necessaries. Apparently, it wasn't to be too sober of a voyage from this point on. Then they actually burned the revenge to hide any evidence of their crimes there in the Cape Verdes. The ship also held 50 or 60 women, 60 slaves. What happened to these women isn't recorded in any of the sources. The fact that they named their ship Bachelor's Delight brings to mind some disturbing possibilities. However, I think the worst of these that comes to mind is unlikely. Now, some pirate ships wouldn't have been above keeping a few of those women around for their own purposes, but it's unlikely that the Bachelor's Delight did. Now, most of them probably had a, an unhappy fate. They were likely sold to slave merchants there in Sierra Leone. See, well, during his court-martial, Bartholomew Sharp accused John Cook and Edward Davis of buggery. He even went so far as to suggest that the entire crew that mutinied against him was guilty of the crime of buggery. William Dampier... Well, Dampier could have returned to see his wife, Judith, when he sailed for Virginia, but he didn't. I mean, he probably should have, but he had more than a year there in Virginia, and still he didn't. In fact, after he married Judith, he left a few weeks later, before the first Pacific Adventure, but he wouldn't see her for 12 years after their marriage. It's possible, even likely, that the crew of the Bachelor's Delight was gay. Maybe all of them. See, 
English society was less accepting of homosexuality than France, for example. Even the relatively libertine French weren't easy on openly gay men, but England could be worse. For a gay Englishman, leaving English shores and joining a crew of other like-minded men might be a fantastic option. It might even be delightful. Or perhaps not. We don't know. What we do know, though, is that the Bachelor's Delight sailed from the Cape Verdes to the Straits of Magellan. Now, Dampier argued against taking the Straits. He said, quote, I urged to hinder their designs of going through the Straits of Magellan, which I knew would prove very dangerous to us, the rather because our men, being privateers and so more willful and less under command, would not be so ready to give a watchful attendance in a passage so little known. End quote. However, Crowley and Captain Cook ignored this advice. They intended to take those straits. But then, on Valentine's Day, 1684, according to Ambrose Crowley, the crew was discoursing the intrigues of women when they were hit by a terrible storm. Now, the storm blew them southwards, further south than any ship had ever been, at least any English ship. This made it impossible for them to take the Straits of Magellan, which might have made Dampier happy if not for the fact that the ship was then assaulted by an icy rain. Now, this allowed the men to fill their barrels with rainwater, but it also forced the men to turn to brandy to warm themselves. Perhaps it's good that they brought that brandy. Crowley noted that they could, quote, drink three quarts of burnt brandy a man in 24 hours without getting intoxicated, end quote. That's three and a half liters for our non-American listeners. Look, that's just nonsense. I don't care how tough a grizzled old sailor you are or how cold the rain is. Crowley is saying here that they could drink four and a half bottles of Jack Daniels in a day without getting drunk, and that would just straight up kill any human being you or I have ever known. But then the storm passed. The crew, though, had come to the conclusion that, quote, the discoursing of women at sea was very unlucky, end quote, and they believed that it, quote, occasioned the storm. They chose to keep silent on the issue from then on. With the Straits of Magellan now behind them, they were forced to take a route around the Cape, which was difficult sailing, but perhaps not as difficult as the Straits of Magellan. When they finally were around the Cape, and finally in the Pacific Ocean, they found themselves in calm, peaceful seas. But only a few days later, they spotted a set of sails on the horizon. Dampier writes, quote, We looked out in the morning. We saw a ship to the southward of us, coming with all sail she could make after us. We lay muzzled to let her come up with us, for we supposed her to be a Spanish ship come from Valdivia, bound for Lima. End quote. This was a hard bit of luck. They had just entered the Pacific Ocean, and already a Spanish ship had spotted them and was coming to intercept them. The Bachelor's Delight prepared herself for a fight. The other ship was coming up fast and setting a course to intercept them. And that other ship was prepared for a fight. Her guns were manned and they were prepared to fire. 
She was positioned to come right up alongside the bachelor's delight and intended to bombard and then board her. However, John Cook and Edward Davis were prepared. They were seasoned pirates, and their ship was well-armed, even better armed than this enemy vessel. So the pirates on board the Bachelor's Delight hunkered down and readied themselves to fight off the Spanish attack. But then, to their amazement, that Spanish ship hailed them in English. The crew of the Bachelor's Delight poked their heads up, just enough to see who was on board the other ship, and they saw a crew of Englishmen. Clearly not the Royal Navy, though. There was only one sort of English ship that might be sailing in these waters, the pirate ship. So Captain Cook hailed back, and he sent over grappling hooks to pull the two ships in close. Then, there in the open ocean, the men met to talk. The other ship turned out to be the Nicholas, under Captain John Eaton, out of London. He was, yes, a freebooter, and he was here to ravage the Spanish presence on the Pacific. But the two pirate ships shared water and brandy and bread and beef, and then they discussed their plans. They decided it would be best to work together. Here in the southern ocean there were no English settlements, there were no friendly ports, so it made sense to stick together. They did have word that there was another ship, with Captain Swan and a man they all knew, Basil Ringrose. However, he had sailed north already. So the two ships agreed to travel to the island of Juan Fernandez. They set sail, and they would arrive there on the 22nd of March. However, when they arrived, they would meet someone there that they did not expect to find. Next time, we'll follow the pirates to Juan Fernandez Island. And then we'll follow John Cook, Edward Davis, William Dampier, Lionel Wafer, John Eaton, Basil Ringrose, and Charles Swan as they ravage their way up the Pacific coast of South America and return once again to Panama. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon or by giving us a shout-out wherever it is you happen to listen to the show. I couldn't do this without all of you, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you have yet to check them out, I absolutely suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Shake down.
light this morn, the old captain has died. Let him live on in legend tonight.